Amen. How's it going, everybody? Hey, I, I am really excited to be here. Are you guys glad you're here? Yeah? I mean, if nothing else, you have popsicles for free, right? That's something to do worth it. Hey, man, it, it's a little sad. It's the last living room of the summer, man. It's like tear-worthy in a way, you know? So I've been crying backstage. I'm sure you heard me. So, um, But we are excited for the fall because if you are around Buckhead Church or around KSU, we're going to have an awesome time this summer. Yeah, owls. So um, we're, we're, we're pumped about that, all right? So uh, anyway, we're excited about the summer, and I'm glad that you guys are here tonight. We're going to finish up our series, How to Travel Without a Map, tonight. And uh, really, to, to be completely honest with you guys, I have been looking forward to this part of the series, the whole series, because, you know, the first couple of weeks we had to do some setup stuff. And setup's really important because if we kind of tell you some of the answers without any of the information before the answers, the answers don't mean as much. And you don't really know what to do with the answers. But tonight, Tonight's just going to be full of some answers, and so I am just super pumped to be able to share that with you. But before we get too far into this last uh, you know, part of the series, and before we close it out completely, let me do a quick review, okay? I'm not going to do the whole thing, okay? That would take an hour, but I'm going to give you like three or four minutes, right, of review, so you can all catch up. We can be on the same page before we move into the big reveal application uh, as we end this series. So if you're for the first time, don't worry. I'm going to give you a quick review, right? And one thing that we have been saying for this whole series, series is just simply this, that we believe as Christians that there is a God and we believe that he has a plan for our lives. We, we believe that he, that, that he is real, that God is real, and we believe that he has a plan for us. And, and not only does he have a plan for us, we have been saying, and I think this is true, that God has a very personal plan for us. It's not just some big ethereal global kingdom plan and you're like a little pawn in his big you know, chess game. We believe that God has a very personal plan for your life. Now, I grew up in the church. Some of you probably did that as well. I've been in the church since I was negative nine months old, so it didn't take long for me to begin to buy into that belief, right? I mean, I was a kid, and I believed that there was a God, and it didn't take long for me to buy into the idea that he had a plan for me. So when I was, you know, eight years old, his plan for me seemed pretty simple, you know, follow the rules, go to school, try your best, play with transformers, jump your bike off sweet ramps. I mean, it's pretty much it, right? But then as I got older, like you did, God's plan for my life became more important to me. I began to really want to know what his plan for my life was because as I got older, and especially when I got to be college age, that season of life was ripe with choices. And the choices that I was making in college, I thought, and I was totally right about this, were really important in my life. I mean, the season that you are in is an important season. And the choices that you're making right now are really going to impact a lot of what happens in your life as you, you know, continue to, to get older. If you think about the relationships you're going to have, maybe a marriage you're going to have, hopefully one of those, right? If you think about all the other things you're going to do, the jobs you're going to take, the friendships you're going to make, right? The, the places you're going to live, the cities you're going to move to, all of those things are really important. And some of the decisions you're making now are going to shape those things tomorrow. So if you're a Christian like me, my guess, my assumption is that you'd love to know what God's personal plan for your life is. We end up praying a prayer all the time, don't we? And the prayer kind of sounds basically like this. God, I just want to know where you want me to go. And God, I'll tell you what, as a Jesus follower, if you'll just tell me where you want me to go, I'll go. I mean, just don't say missionary. But other than that, you know, like, I'm in, you know. You just tell me where you want me to go, and I'll go. You, you tell me what you want me to do, and, and I'll do it. You know, God, I just want to know what college you want me to go to. God, I just want to know what major you want me to choose. God, I, I want to know what major you want me to try next. You know, 
God, I'm going to go for round three. You know, what's the major this time, you know? Do I take 8 a.m. classes and try to get up, or do I take 10 o'clock classes and have later days, you know? Yes, 10 o'clock, by the way. That's the answer to that one, okay? It's moral will. Providential will of God. Don't take 8 a.m. classes, okay? This has nothing to do with the message, but my first year, I had an 8 a.m. class, and the very first day I walked in, it was a math class. The professor said, I don't care if you come to class, and then he said something else. I have no idea what he said after that. I, I was like... Awesome, you know, so I, I never made it. In fact, I, my, my good friend would wake me up every Tuesday, Thursday for lunch because I missed my 930 class for the same reason that whole first year. So don't do as the pastor says, okay? Do better than that. But that's what I did. So anyway, but we're praying about all these things, right? We have relationships. God, I, I just want to know what you want me to do relationally. God, I really want to date her. She doesn't know my name, but look how hot she is. Like, can you just help me? I, you know, I, I just, I just want to date your way. I want to know your will for my dating life. Some of you, some of you are like thinking about taking dating to another level, and I don't mean like an immoral version of that. I mean like, like to a good, like it involves a ring, another level, and you're thinking, God, I, I don't know if I should ask her. I don't know if I should say yes. What is she going to say? What is your will for my relationships? You see, th this is a big question. It's a really big question. And so in, in the very first week, we begin to unpack the question. And here's what we said is that if you want to discover God's personal plan for your life, it's going to be a little difficult. First, because it's personal to you. Like, it's kind of easy to understand God's providential will, because it's going to happen whether you want it to or not. You don't have a choice in it. It's even easier to understand God's moral will, the do's and don'ts of the Bible, because they're in the Bible. It's easy to figure those things out. But when it comes to your personal will, it's personal to you. And I can't really tell you God's personal will for you. Your friend can't tell you. Your parents have tried to tell you, but they can't tell you either, because it's personal. It's between you and it's between God. And by the way, Many people probably won't even understand it because it's personal. It's between you and it's between God. So how do you figure that out? Well, unfortunately, there's no formula. If it was, that would be so much easier, right? But God never works on easy. There's no really formula to figure out God's personal will for your life. But over the last two weeks, what we've said is there's some prerequisites to figuring it out. And so in week one, we talked about God's moral will. And we said that if you really want to discover God's moral, I mean, personal will for your life, it's actually going to involve obeying God's moral will. Paul talked about this in Romans when he wrote to the Christians in Rome. And he said there's a real connection between you following his moral will and you discovering God's personal will. We, we kind of said it like this. It's a long statement, but here it is. The first step, and I think this is so important, the first step in discovering God's personal will for our life is to follow his personal will for everyone's life. If you want to figure out God's personal will for your life, it's going to begin with you obeying the things he's told everybody to do. So we kind of joked around with that in the first week. We said, none of you need to pray, God, should I sleep with a bunch of people, right? God's like, no, duh, why are you asking me that? Of course you don't have to do that. God, you know, should I talk about my roommate? I mean, she's an awful person. Should I gossip about her pretty much all the time? No, you know. Okay, well, God, can I kill her? Is that possible? No, you know, moral will. He's been very clear about that stuff, right? You don't have to pray about it. But this is, this, is, this is so important. There's a real connection between you figuring out God's personal plan for your life and your ability to follow his moral plan for everybody's life. So that's, that's a huge prerequisite for it. And then last week, we kind of talked about one more thing that you have to figure out because God's will for your life is personal. And so if you want to figure out God's personal will for your life, you're going to need to have a personal relationship with God. We said it this way last week, that God's personal plan for your life comes through a personal plan 
you know, with your life, a personal relationship with God, okay? So, so God's personal plan for you, think about this, his personal plan for you comes through a personal relationship with you. And there's a lot of reasons. We're going to get to one of those reasons today. But if you really want to know God's plan for your life, you need to obey the rules and the to-dos and the to-don'ts he's given to everybody. And then you have to have a personal relationship with him because his will for you is personal. And the more you know him, the more it's going to be revealed to you. So tonight, as we close out our series, I want to talk about what we're going to do when God begins to reveal his plan for you. Right, what are we going to actually do when God reveals his plan for you and for me, for all of us? Because here's the thing. God doesn't want to keep it a secret from you. Like God's goal for your life isn't to have you search your whole life and be on your deathbed and go, ah, I finally got it. I mean, that's not his goal, right? You know why? Because it's personal for you and he created it. In fact, I think God wants nothing more than to have a relationship with you and then for you to figure out what his plan for your life is. Because the absolute best life possible is going to be lived when you're living his will for your life. It's by far the best way to live. In fact, it's the most fulfilling, joyful way to live. So God wants you to figure it out. He doesn't want it to be a secret. But here's part of the problem before we kind of get into the, the solution. Part of the problem is how we think about God's plan for our life. Now, this could just be my type A kind of thing in me. But when I think about God's plan for my life, especially when I was in college, golly, what I wanted was a Google Maps version of God's plan for my life. That's kind of what I wanted, right? I wanted God to not just tell me where I am and where he wants me to be. I wanted to know all the twists and turns and all the directions and the streets and the paths I was going to take along the way. That's kind of what I asked for. And God never seemed to give that to me. And let me give you a little hint why, and this is a spoiler alert. That isn't how God works. God doesn't seem to be in the business of telling you everything you want to know. God never seems to give us all of the information we need to know. But if we can begin to rethink about God's will for us, if we can re-kind of think about maybe how he's communicating it or what he wants us to see and what he wants us to do, here's some great news. It not only allows you to discover part of this plan, it actually allows you to start taking steps towards it. So to figure out that part, and that's what we're going to do tonight, to figure that thing out, I want us to look at one of my absolute favorite stories in the Bible. It was written in the book of Matthew. Now, a lot of you know this story, so don't skip to the end and go, blah, I got it, king of pops, let's go, okay? Because this story is one of those you probably all have heard. But there are some things in the middle of the story that I honestly missed for about 20 years of my life, okay? And I don't want you guys to miss it. I don't want you to live your 20s missing this part of the story because it's so critical, to understanding how God works, especially, I think, when it comes to our personal will. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Matthew. Matthew is who wrote the story. Matthew is one of the guys who was a disciple of Jesus or an apostle. You've probably heard that before. Um, he had 12 of them. Jesus did. And Matthew followed Jesus around for the three years of his ministry. Everywhere he went, he, he took notes in Evernote or his iPad or however he did that, okay? And at the end of his life, he decided to write an account of the life of Jesus because it was just so extraordinary. Now, there's four guys who chose to do that. Two of them were eyewitnesses. Matthew was one of those eyewitnesses. Now, Matthew was an interesting guy. He was probably one of the least likely people to have been a disciple because Matthew was a tax collector. And I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but you probably already don't have a love, you know, for the IRS. If you were in the first century, you would have really hated these guys because the tax collectors were the worst of the worst of the worst. And that's what Matthew was. And then one day, Jesus is walking by with some fishermen friends that he had picked up along the way. 
And he saw Matthew, and he said, hey, Matthew, come and follow me. And the other guys were like, seriously, we have to invite him, you know? But they did. And he came along, and he became one of the 12 disciples. And at the end of Jesus' life, he began to write an account of everything he saw and everything he experienced. And so the story we're going to look at tonight involves one that he personally was involved in and that he got to write about later. And even better than that, it involves specifically Jesus and one of the 12 guys, a guy by the name of Peter. Peter was my favorite disciple, probably because he was always doing crazy things. He was a risk taker. He's cutting people's ears off. I mean, this guy is awesome, okay? But Peter does something in this story that I'm telling you, I think every one of us would love to do, but I'm not so sure any of us would be willing to do. But Peter's an amazing guy. And I think if we can follow along with Peter and figure out what was going on in his head and in his heart, And in his soul, when he had an opportunity, I think it could change the way we see God, and it may even change the trajectories of our life. So, that's a lot of context on that. Let me tell you what's going on in this story. What we're going to find is that Jesus has had a really kind of hard day in a way, okay? He's the son of God. Things don't always go easy for him. One of his best buddies, a guy by the name of John the Baptist, who was a cousin of his, he found out in the morning of this day that he had been beheaded by the king, okay? And then later in the day, he's preaching to a whole bunch of people and healing people because everywhere you go, if you can heal blindness and leprosy and cure disease, wherever you go, large crowds show up. And so that's what's happening with Jesus. Huge crowds have showed up. So he has compassion on them. He's teaching them. But it's been going on for a really, really long time. And so you probably remember the story. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, it's been a long day. The people are hungry and there's no like McDonald's anywhere, right? We need to send them home. Because otherwise, they're all going to starve. And Jesus looks at him. He goes, well, you guys, just feed them. And they're like, got nothing, Jesus. Like, what do I do with that? And so Jesus says, well, what do you have? Look around. And they come back with this little boy's, like, sack lunch. And he has some fish and bread. I think this kid was like, why are you stealing my lunch, you know? And they're like, well, Jesus wants it. So they go to Jesus. And he goes, okay, this is perfect. So he prays for it. And they feed about fifteen or 20,000 people right there. And then at the end, of course, they pick up 12 basketfuls for themselves. So after all of this has happened, Jesus, he's tired. He's, he's, he's God, but he's also fully man, and he's displaying something I think we all need to know. And so he, he kind of takes a break, and that kind of gets us to where we're at in the story. So if you have your Bible, Matthew, you can follow along. If not, you can read along with me on this giant TV. Okay, here we go. Matthew, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. So again, they're in this region called Galilee. There's a Sea of Galilee, and none of you have probably been there, okay? Or maybe you have seen this, but it's not like a giant lake, okay? The Sea of Galilee at its widest point is only about five miles across. In fact, you can stand on one side and see all the way to the other side. So Jesus and his disciples have been teaching and healing and, you know, feeding a bunch of people fish and chips. And then he says, okay, listen, here's the deal. I need you guys to get in the boat and go on across the lake. I'll join you later. So the disciples do it. Here's what happens next. While he dismissed the crowd, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And he did this all the time. Jesus was constantly going off by himself to pray. And I think partially to teach us a lesson. I mean, it's one of the to-dos of the Bible. Take a day off. Refresh yourself. And I think Jesus was displaying something he wanted all of us to do as well. So he's constantly kind of finding refreshment between himself and his father, off by himself praying. So here's kind of how the story unfolds. This is so fascinating. So next part. Later that night, now this is important, it's nighttime now, okay? So that he fed these guys around late dinner. The disciples are out in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and a lot of time has passed. It's late into the night, okay, at this point. It's probably about 3 in the morning is what we, we think happened here. So later in the night, 
He was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, so they're probably about halfway across the lake. But they should be a lot farther. But the reason they're not is because of this. Their boat was buffeted by the waves and the wind. Now, buffeted means that there was a bunch of storms, a bunch of waves. It was almost like a torrential downpour going on, and they couldn't go anywhere. So for hours and hours and hours, these guys have been trying their best to move their boat without a motor, okay, all the way across to the other side of the lake, like Jesus had told them. But for hours, they have not been able to do it, and they're probably exhausted They've got to be tired. They're probably a little scared. In fact, they may even be worried about their life because of what's happening on the sea. Okay, check this out. So cool. Next part. Shortly before dawn, so it's been hours and hours and hours they've been fighting these waves out on this boat. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. And we always just read this and kind of forget that these are real people, right? Walking on the lake. Now think about this for a minute. They're out on the boat. And I told you, you've heard this story before, but just stop for a minute, right? They're out on the boat in the middle of this hellacious storm. They're fighting for their life, and they look up, and here comes Jesus, like, chilling on the lake, just walking out to them. And I used to think, why didn't he take a boat? And I thought, oh, well, because if I could walk on water, I'd totally do that all the time, too, you know? So Jesus is like, hey, I got a great idea. I'm just going to walk out there and meet these guys. So he starts walking out. And, and, and the disciples, kind of in the distance through the rain and the storm and the waves and all the things that are going on, they see Jesus, and they reacted the exact same way you or I would react, right? They, they peed in their pants. Here's what Matthew says. When the disciples saw him, it doesn't really say that, but I think that's what happened, okay? When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. And, and I think we would do the exact same thing, right? Like, Actually, tell me later if you've done this. Have you ever seen something that isn't supposed to happen and it just freaked you out? That's crazy. Me too, right? It's scary as crap, man. Like when you see something that isn't supposed to happen, it is scary. Okay, this is not in my notes, but let me tell you. When I used to work in student ministry, and uh, we would take the middle school kids on a retreat, vertical reality. Some of you have been on that before. Um, we would, yours wasn't as good as this. Check this out. So the, the eighth graders, we had a tradition at the church I was at, right? We had a tradition. The eighth graders, the last night of VR, vertical reality, we would take them out on like a, I, I don't know what you'd call it, like a ghost walk or whatever. Anyway, the whole point was that we would take them out and just scare them, okay? So we took them out, and we would make up all these stories and all these kinds of things, and we would end up at this really old, scary, gothic-looking church. And there was a chair that we had always stationed there, okay? And I would sit in this metal chair. It had to be metal because it's really loud. You'll know why in a minute. I sat in the chair. They would all stand right there in front of me, like 20 of them. And I would tell, like, some scary stories about the church. So we just made them all up. But, you know, who cares because we were just trying to scare them. So we would tell these scary stories. And then all of a sudden, we'd stop. And I would go, like, did you hear that? Well, eighth graders, they're, like, freaking out already. You know, I'm like, shh, shh, shh. And I would get up. And I would walk over to the edge and look in the woods. And then we had rigged the chair with fishing line. And so a person on the other side hiding in the woods would start pulling the chair across the patio, right? And the chair is really loud metal. It's going across the thing. Well, you can imagine what the eighth graders are doing, right? You know what they're doing? They're terrified. They're freaking out, right? The best moment, we had an eighth grade girl on the ground pounding her fist going, why, why, why? And, and I mean, it was some of the best ministry moments of my whole life, i got to be honest, right? Here's the point. When you see chairs moving across patios by themselves, you do what everybody normal does, right? You freak out, right? When you see people walking on water, what do you do? 
you freak out because that's not supposed to happen, right? So, of course, Jesus sees them terrified. He, he's a good guy. He doesn't want them, you know, you know, soiling their clothes right in the boat. And by the way, they're in a boat. They don't have a change of clothes, right? So he doesn't want that. So he sees them in the boat terrified, and here's what Jesus says to them. But Jesus immediately said to them, stop being such a baby. I'm just kidding. He didn't say that, okay? That's not what he said. But, but what he did say, this is so important, what he did say, I think he would say to you and me, not just when we're terrified because we see a person walking on the water. Listen, I think he would say this to us in almost every facet of our life. And Jesus knew what was about to happen because he was, by the way, Jesus. He knew that he and Peter were about to do something pretty incredible. And I think he was preparing Peter for what was about to happen. And I think he would say the same thing to you and me, preparing us for maybe what's going to happen here too. Here's what Jesus actually said. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. He said, chill out, don't freak out, okay? Another translation says, take heart. He says, calm down. Then he says this, it is I, it's Jesus. Like, calm down, take, take courage, take heart. It's me, it's your Lord, it's your Savior, it's Jesus. And then maybe the most important part of all, he says this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's okay, I know that this looks scary. I know that you should be afraid. I know that everybody who's normal is afraid, but I don't want you to be afraid. Now, let me just quick side note here. Jesus is about to give Peter a little bit of a personal plan for his life. And here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows that when he tells Peter what his plan is, that he's going to be a little bit scared. He's going to be a little frightful. In fact, everybody around him is going to start kind of getting nervous for Peter. And I think Jesus is basically saying, hey, Peter, don't worry, take heart. It's me. You can trust me. Don't be afraid. You see, when God starts to reveal his personal plan for you, I think that's what he would say too. <laughs> In fact, I think if he were to, to give his personal plan for you, I think this is what Jesus would say. Here's the plan. Take courage. It's from me, and I don't want you to be afraid. Th this is your plan, but I want you to take courage because it's coming from me, and I don't want you to be afraid. So, Story continues. Peter and all the 11 guys are in the boat. And Peter, being the type A kind of driver, director, person that he is, looks out at Jesus and he says this to him. Lord, Jesus, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Which is what we're kind of asking when we say, God, what do you want me to do? This is kind of another version of, God, what is your personal will for my life? What is your plan for my life? What do you really want from me? And, of course, Jesus looks back at Peter, and he says something that had to scare him to death. Come, he said. And Matthew doesn't tell us, but I think Peter heard that, and Peter went, uh-oh. Uh <laughs> and the other 11 guys went, oh, snap. Like, he just told him to get out of the boat. And, by the way, there's a huge storm, and it's almost killed us for eight hours. And now he's telling Peter to get out of the boat. Now, this is something you got to know. See, I think discovering God's will for your life can be difficult. But let me just tell you, I think following God's will for your life is way more difficult. In fact, discovering God's will, it's way easier than following God's will. Discovering God's will for your life may seem hard at times, but you just need to know that when you begin to figure it out, you're going to think the discovery part was pretty easy. It's the following part that gets really tough. 
I mean, think about even last week we talked about Abraham. I mean, think about this. Abraham, here's my instruction to you. Go to the land that I will show you. What does that even mean, right? Where do I start walking? God, can you give me some more direction? Nope. But I want you to trust me. See, that's harder, isn't it? Abraham, I know I told you 25 years ago that you were going to have a son and you were going to be a great nation. But now that Isaac's here, I want you to take him up in a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. Come again? You want me to do what? Yeah, I want you to take him up and sacrifice him. So what does Abraham do? He starts walking up the mountain with Isaac. And Isaac's like, hey, yo, where's the lamb that we're going to kill? And his dad's like, don't worry about it. God's going to provide it. <laughs> and then they get on top of the mountain. You remember the story? They get on top of the mountain, and, and he starts tying Isaac up. And Isaac is like, this isn't looking good. And he lays Isaac on an altar, and Isaac is going, uh, seriously? And Abraham raises a knife, and God stops him, and he points to the side, and there's a lamb, the ram actually caught in a bush. God did provide. But let me just promise you, I've got four kids. Discovering God's will, way easier than following it. Think about Noah. We could do this for hours. Let me just give you a couple more. Think about Noah, all right? I mean, every character in the Bible is this story. You know, Noah, it's about to rain, and I need you to build a boat. Okay, God, what is rain? <laughs> I've never seen that before. And does my HOA allow boats in the village? I don't, can I do that? <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. I just need you to build a boat. Here's the specs. Knowing his will, way easier than following it. Moses, hey, I know 40 years ago you had to flee Egypt because you're, you know, we're considered a murderer. And if you go back, they're probably going to kill you. But, but I want you to go back. Okay, that kind of stinks. But I want you to go back, and I need you to go talk to Pharaoh. And I know Pharaoh thinks he's a god, but he's not a god. And I want you to go back and tell the most powerful person in the world that you and I are demanding he let the entire workforce leave the country. Knowing the will, way easier than following it. I mean, think about Peter again. Hey, God, if it's really you, tell me to come out there. That's easy. Okay, come on out. Uh-oh. Following God's will is always harder than discovering it. Now, here's why. See, God doesn't work in Google Maps. See, if God gave you everything you needed to know, we think it'd be easier to follow him. The reason it's harder to follow is because God typically only gives us a step. Have you noticed that before? Like, God doesn't really give you all the information that you need. He typically just gives you the next thing you need to know. And that creates some problems, because it creates a lot of questions. And listen, it creates a lot of doubt. And what we want to do is say, God, remove the doubt. I don't want to go to the college you will show me. I want you to tell me exactly where to go, and I want to know everything there is to know about it. But just can you imagine for a second, if he would have done that with Peter, what would have happened? You know, hey, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come out on the water. Okay, Peter, I want you to come. But before you do, let me tell you some more things first. You need to know all the details, okay? Because when you get out on the water, you're going to get real nervous, and you're going to start to sink, and you're going to drown. But don't worry, I'm going to save you. It's going to be super scary for about 10 seconds, though, okay? But I'm going to save you. But then later, it's going to get worse than that. 
Because eventually I'm going to be arrested and you're going to be hunted. And, and, and some middle school girls are going to come by. And they're going to say, hey, aren't you one of the ones who was with Jesus? And you're going to be like, no, you know. And then another middle schooler is going to come by and go, hey, aren't you Peter? And he's like, I don't bleep and know who Jesus is. Read the Bible. It says that, right? You know, three times, Peter, you're going to deny me and you're going to feel awful about it. You need to know that before you get out of the boat. You're going to feel terrible. In fact, you're going to feel so terrible, you're going to want to kill yourself, but you're not going to. And then, by the way, they're going to murder and crucify me, okay? okay? And you're going to be really scared at that point. In fact, you're going to be in hiding. You're going to lock yourself in a room. And for three days, you're going to be panicking. But good news, I come back to life, okay? And I'm going to scare a lot of people. And I'm going to come through doors and appear, and we're going to eat pizza together. But, but I'm going to leave. And you're going to become the first pope, which is awesome. But then you're going to die. And it isn't going to be very fun because they're going to crucify you like they did me. But it's going to be even worse because you're going to be upside down. So come on out of the boat. <laughs> now do you see why Jesus doesn't give you all the details? See, the details create doubt. And I think part of the reason God doesn't re remove the doubt is because if he did, you wouldn't go anywhere. You'd stay right where you were and miss out on everything he has for you. But here's another reason. And see, doubt and faith are tied together. And if Jesus removed all of your doubt, you wouldn't have any reason for faith anymore. Because doubt is actually required for faith. Have you ever thought about that? A little bit of doubt is required for faith. And I think this is the reality. That God cares too much about your faith to remove all of your doubt. I just think God cares way too much about your faith to remove all of your doubt. So let me just promise you this. When you get God's plan for your life, and it comes in a version of a step, it's going to probably create more questions than provide answers. It's probably going to create a lot of doubt. And God's okay with that. God's okay with your doubt. He can handle it. Because he cares more about your faith than your doubt. And he is never going to remove all the doubt. Because it would destroy your faith. So, wrapping this up. You know the rest of the story, right? He gets out of the boat. In fact, here's kind of how Matthew said it. Um, then Peter got down out of the boat, which has got to be insane, right? And he began to walk on the water towards Jesus. Now, eventually he walks out there and he gets a little nervous and he starts to sink and Jesus saves him, you know, probably the worst 10 seconds of his life up to that point, you know. And then we kind of like look at Peter and we think, man, like you're kind of a loser. Why did you take your eyes off Jesus? And I'm like, hey, there were 11 other guys way worse in the boat because they didn't do anything. At least Peter got out and did something. At least he got out and tried. At least he got out and took the next step that God gave him. So let me, let me wrap up with this, okay? Um, I think there's some things that you just kind of need to know when it comes to God's plan for your life. And I, I came up with six of them. That's a lot, okay? But you guys are way above average college students. So I'm going to give you all of them, okay? And some of these may really resonate. If one doesn't, just take a nap for a second. We'll come back to another one, okay? But there are six things that I think you just got to know when it comes to following God's personal plan for your life, okay? And here's some things you got to know. Here's the first one. God's personal plan is going to be built on your personal relationship with him. We talked about that in week two. If you really want to know that personal plan, it's going to be built on the shoulders of a personal relationship. So you need to do whatever it's going to take to develop that personal relationship. If you don't have that personal relationship right now, here's some really great news. It's completely free. It's available for everyone. 
It's never going to be based on how good you promise to be or how good you have been. It's always going to be based on God's grace and your faith. So if you want to establish that relationship, it's really easy. And even better, if you want to grow that relationship, it just takes spending time with him. And it takes beginning to trust him. Because his personal plan for you is going to be built on a personal relationship. That's one. Here's the next one. Number two, God's personal plan often requires God's personal involvement. I've never walked on water, but I guarantee you if I ever do, God's going to be out there with me. I won't do it on my own. God's plan for your life is probably going to involve him. His plan for you is probably going to require his participation. In fact, I think one of the ways you know if it's God's plan is if it takes him to make it work. Because if you can do it on your own, maybe it's your plan, not his. But his plan is going to require his involvement. Here's another one. Number three. You guys seem super excited about all these. Okay, number three. God's personal plan might create more questions than answers. I mentioned that earlier. But when you get a little bit of a plan from God, trust me, it is not going to resolve a bunch of tension in your life. It's actually going to create some tension. It's going to create some questions. In fact, it may create some questions for all the people around you who love you. There have been so many times where my parents have sat down with me and said, I've got a few questions based on what you're telling me. You know why? Because God's will always creates questions. And God's, I think, okay with that. All right, here's the next one. Number four, um, God's personal plan for you is probably going to scare you a little bit, okay? It's just going gonna, gonna to be a little scary, partially because you don't know all the details. Partially because God's plan seems to always happen in the deep part of the ocean, okay? God doesn't often lead us into the kiddie pool area, okay? He typically takes us into the deep end when you don't know how to swim yet. And I think he prefers it that way because he wants you to lean on him and trust him during the process. It goes back to that relationship piece. Okay, two more. Next one, number five, God's personal plan, and these are really important. God's personal plan begins with a step. Now, sometimes he may tell you more, but oftentimes, and in my case, almost every time, God's personal plan for me wasn't given in full details. It was just given in a next step. Do I have time to tell you this real quick? When I began to get involved in ministry, I, I, I didn't plan on grow, being in ministry. I didn't plan on being a pastor. I grew up in the church, as I said, but I also grew up kind of hating the pastors because they were all morons, it seemed like to me. And all they did is tell me what I can't do and what I can do, what I can't do and what I can do. And then I kind of hung out with the people who weren't like the good Christian people because I liked them better. They were just nicer than the Christians. And so I got lumped in with the bad kids all the time, but I didn't really do any of the bad things that they did. But I got treated as if I did. And it made me so angry, and it made me so frustrated with the church and with the people who led the church. So the idea of me being a pastor was not even on my radar at all. So I went to Berry College and got a marketing degree. Then I went to Georgia State and got an MBA in marketing. I worked in consulting for a while. Yeah, what's up? I, I worked in consulting for a while. And then I started my own business, which was doing really, really great. And then I went on a, a retreat with a bunch of middle school kids, and it ruined my life in the best sort of way. Ruined my life in a few ways, but in a really good way, too. And I, I'll never forget, I came home, and I had small group that night. And I walked in, and I told my wife and my small group at the same time, which in hindsight wasn't smart, but I told them all at the same time, I think God wants me to walk away from the marketplace and, 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 and work in ministry. And I don't even think I can do that because I have a business degree. I don't think people like me can even, I think, I think it's in the Bible. You're not allowed to work at a church. But, but I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do. 
And let me just tell you, over about six years' time, God kept going, here's the next step. Here's the next step. You know what I kept doing? Okay, okay, okay. Tell me the whole plan. Tell me everything I need to know. Do I need to go to school? What kind of job should I look for? What kind of church should I look for? What kind of position should I have? I mean, I'm asking all these questions. You know what God kept doing? God kept saying, take a step. Get out of the boat. Do one thing. Which finally is what I did. Now, I can promise you, if God would have told me a decade ago, hey, one day you'll be working at Watermark, you'll be a part of North Point Ministries, you'll be hanging out with some of the coolest college kids in the whole world, you know, I'd have been like, you are out of your mind. I have an MBA in marketing, I'm not allowed to do that. God didn't care about that. God says, my personal plan for you is the next step. And that's what you gotta take. Okay, that was too long. Let me go to the next one, last one. Number six, and I said this earlier, but it's worth repeating. God cares too much about your faith to remove your doubt. He just cares way too much about your faith to remove your doubt. So let me, a lot of information. I totally get that, okay? You guys are super smart. I'm taking it all in. If you remember anything over the three weeks that we've talked, I mean, if you remember, if you forget everything we've said, that you can just remember one thing. Here's what I want you to remember. You're never going to have all the information that you need. You're never going to know everything you need to know. All the details are never going to be provided. But at some point, if you want to follow God's plan for your life, when you don't know, you have to trust and you have to go. At some point, you're not going to know, but you have to trust God and you have to take the next step. And your friends are going to think you're crazy and your parents are going to think they paid for an education that you don't need anymore. And everybody around you is not going to understand it, and that's okay, because it's personal between you and between God. When you don't know, you have to trust, and you have to go. Let me pray for you guys, and um, we're going to sing a little more, and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, the opportunity we have had to talk about something that I think you care a ton about. Thank you for um, guys like Peter who were willing to not just ask insane questions, but were willing to follow you and do things that nobody possibly could understand but, but you and him. And so, God, in this room, there is no doubt people who are trying to figure out your plan and your will for their life. I pray that you will do what you have done for thousands of years, what you have done for me, what you have done for people like Brad, what you have done for so many of us. I pray that you will give us the next step. And even more than that, I pray that you will give everyone the courage to take the step. No matter how crazy it seems, no matter how scared it makes us, God, at some point when we just don't know all the details, give us the faith to trust and to go. We love you. And Jesus, we just pray this in your name. Amen.